Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And I hope today is a particularly thoughtful podcast and helpful to you as I want to speak about the consequences to the way we think about law, civil government, ourselves as human beings, and our social order as a result, I would say a direct result, of a decision by the United States Supreme Court in 1938 that gave birth to a whole generation of what I will call nominal Christians in the pews and in evangelical pulpits. Now, uh, there's a bit of a play on the word there, nominal Christians, that I'll explain in a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm not referring to what we might consider half-hearted Christians, uh, assuming there can even be such a thing as a person whose heart is torn asunder between love for God and love for something else for its own sake and not for God's sake. But anyway, I'll explain what I mean by nominal Christians in the context of this decision by the Supreme Court. And it's one every law student reads, or at least excerpts from it, and it's fundamental. But what I suspect few law students are told about this decision, and, and for sure I wasn't, is the conception of reality, its conception of the cosmos on which the decision rests. Now, its conception of the cosmos was, uh, one, a long time coming. And secondly, I believe, its acceptance, or at least the acquiescence to it by the Christian community, must be appreciated if anything is going to be put back on the right track by our efforts in our homes, our personal lives, our churches, and in law and government. In other words, I really believe the political and policy efforts uh, I most often see being advanced by Christians and non-Christians alike, and like the ones that I made for two decades, are in a First Corinthians sense vain other than perhaps God using the paucity of the fruit that those efforts are yielding to finally bring the body of Christ to a place of greater cosmological understanding. And when they see the false cosmology they may have embraced, bring them to repentance. Now, before I delve into that decision and how it has changed things, let me provide some definition to some of what I just said. For any new listeners, when I refer to our cosmological understanding or refer to cosmology, I'm speaking about our understanding, drawn from the word logos in cosmology, of the nature or kind of place this is in which we live. And that informs our understanding of what it's for and how it works. Cosmology was, for me, a completely lost concept until about two years ago 
And um, I want to thank Jason Farley and David Shannon, uh, known to many as Chuck Knox with Knox Unplugged, for beginning to fill this void in my understanding of what's going on around me and uh, what I was doing. And, of course, um, my thanks to the Holy Spirit for helping me apply that broader understanding or for applying that broader understanding to me in regard to law and civil government. And secondly, when I say it's been a long time coming, I mean four centuries coming, beginning with Descartes and following on with Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau to Nietzsche and Derrida. And uh, through them, we've been taken captive by ancient heresies because, like me, we, we either aren't exposed to them or we think them dry and irrelevant, and we blow off opportunities to learn about them. Now, maybe that's not you, and if, if so, um, don't consider yourself indicted, uh, but it certainly was true of me. So anyway, I, I would add to that, that if you think a problem four centuries in the making is going to be fixed in another election cycle or two, you, you may be engaged in, in, in magical thinking. I'm not saying God can't work in a dramatic way, but I don't think he'll act in that way, absent the kind of repentance I'll speak about at the end of today's episode. So I hope you'll hang in to the end today. And finally, when I speak of so many current efforts in law and public policy being vain in a First Corinthians sense, what I'm referring to, for those who've been longtime listeners, is to my series on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we find the Apostle Paul saying that if anything is not laid on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, and he is the foundation for all things, and if it's not then built rightly on that foundation, then what is built will be burned up, even if we are personally saved. The reality is, as Christians, we are in a building project that pertains, as Scripture says, to the restoration of all things in, in Acts and in um, First or Second Corinthians, the reconciliation of all things to God by Jesus Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. And if that doesn't frame our building efforts, and if those building efforts are predicated on political power and coalitions with non-Christians, bringing their political power to us and us compromising our positions to them, then sort of like Judah aligning with Egypt to withstand the Assyrians, then I would submit we're not really building rightly. Those would tend to be what I would call works of the flesh and not of the spirit according to the law of faith. And and I'm also referring to 1 Corinthians 15.58 where we read that our toil or our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And by implication, if the Lord works all things according to his covenant, if covenant provides the structure for our cosmology and we're not working according to the terms of that covenant and its purposes, then I believe it's stated in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, again, our labor may be in vain. It may be akin to what we can do in our personal lives, fighting uncertainly, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, like someone boxing against the air because he doesn't even know what his opponent is or, or where he is. So with that as, as sort of background to the opening of today's episode, I want to press on 
to the Supreme Court decision I mentioned, and then I'm going to make two bullet points for your consideration and thought over the next week before taking up a third very important consideration next week. So, uh, regarding the decision I mentioned, it's known by the shorthand of Erie Railroad, or Erie Railroad versus Tompkins is the full name. You've heard me refer to it uh, multiple times, and and today I'm going to draw some different conclusions from it, because uh, many can be drawn from it. So, uh, there may be a bit of repetition while I explain again what the decision uh, involved. Um, but it rests upon an ungodly cosmology. And and note here, every Supreme Court decision rests upon a cosmology of some kind, even if it's latent and not expressed clearly. I mean, cosmology is not something that can be escaped because God created the cosmos. So it can't be ignored. It can be gotten wrong, but some cosmology must exist in the minds and thoughts of every person, including the United States Supreme Court, the members of Congress, and the members of our state government. And, and even when someone denies the existence of a meta-narrative, a cosmology, you might say, that denial is itself that person's cosmology. So don't let someone get away with denying the existence of meta-narrative. Just say, well, I appreciate you telling me what your meta-narrative is, that there are no meta-narratives. That's your meta-narrative, you see. Well, anyway, Erie Railroad involved a lawsuit between citizens of two different states, and it was a common law-based lawsuit. Uh, it, it wasn't based on the interpretation of a statute or an act of Congress or any of that. So what was at dispute was, was there was a trespass, and the, the question was, what duty does a landowner have to not injure a trespasser? So, uh, for example, let's say the front porch steps to your house are, are, are wooden and they're rotten. And a burglar, you know, is trying to break into your house and he goes up the front porch with his gun and tote sack, you know, to carry off all your jewelries. And, and the, the step cracks and he falls through and scratches up his legs and uh, maybe breaks his leg or his ankle or something, and now he sues you because uh, he was injured because of your rotten steps. See, that, that, that's not the case in this situation, but it's a, an example we might could easily picture, right, in our everyday life. So the question was, what common law was to be applied to the question of what constitutes a trespass, and what duty is owed by a landowner to trespassers? Is it going to be the law of the Pennsylvanian who was injured, the trespasser? Or um, is it going to be the common law of the state of the person uh, who injured the trespasser, um, a New Yorker? Now, up to this point in time, the Supreme Court had said that federal courts could discern the applicable common law as well as any court in Pennsylvania or New York, and the federal courts didn't have to look at how one state would handle this dispute at common law versus the other. It was up to the federal court to decide what the common law was and, uh, and then to apply it to the facts of the case. The Erie Railroad, then, in this issue 
pertaining to matters of common law was an opportunity uh, for the view of common law espoused by Oliver Wendell Holmes to be written into the United States Supreme Court's jurisprudence. And as you've heard me say, um, the view of common law we have today is one invented by Oliver Wendell Holmes and taught in law schools for the last hundred plus years, and it is not the understanding of common law that our founders had or that existed up to the time of our founders. But anyway, this is what the Supreme Court said. The fallacy underlying the rule declared in Swift v. Tyson, now let me state here, the rule in Swift v. Tyson uh, is, a, Swift v. Tyson was a case, uh, the majority opinion was written by Justice Story, who you've heard me talk about, and he's the one that said, well, you don't have to look at the common law court decisions of Pennsylvania or New York. Um, you're just as capable as a federal judge of figuring out the common law as anybody, so figure it out and then apply it to the case. So he's saying the fallacy underlying that rule was made clear by Mr. Justice Holmes. Now, let me just say, as an aside, in a moment, I'm going to read you a quotation from a dissenting opinion by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes that um, 28 years later is now becoming the majority opinion of the United States Supreme Court. So it took... Uh, you know, 28 years for what was the minority view about the conception of law and the cosmos to become the majority view. And uh, so this is what the court continues to say. The doctrine, referring to Swift v. Tyson, that the federal court can figure out the common law as well as the state courts, it rests upon the assumption that there is, quote, a transcendental body of law outside of any particular state, but obligatory within it unless and until changed by statutes. So in other words, the concept is the common law transcends state boundaries. It applies at all times and to all places. It's very much an, a notion that was articulated by Cicero in the Republic, that there's not one law at one time and another law at another time and one law in Athens and another in Rome, but one transcendent law that governs us all, okay? That was the pagan expression of it, but it had been Christianized under the common law through England and the Puritan revolutions and so on and so forth. So anyway, he, they're, they're saying here, quoting Oliver Wendell Holmes, is, is that there's been this mistaken assumption. There's a transcendental body of law, okay? And then they quote Holmes further. Quote, law, in the sense in which courts speak of it today, does not exist without some definite authority behind it. So God would not be a definite authority. He might be a theoretical authority, a proposition upon which we might base absolutes, but uh, it's not a definite authority, which, of course, means there isn't really any revelation either, right, that could give us any definiteness to um, law. It continues on, the common law, so far as it is enforced in a state, whether called common law or not, 
is not the common law generally. See, that was Swift v. Tyson. There's a common law that applies across the whole of the United States, uh, notwithstanding state geographical boundaries. But it's the law of that state existing by the authority of that state without regard to what it may have been in England or anywhere else. The authority, again, quoting Oliver Wendell Holmes, and only authority is the state. And if that be so, the voice adopted by the state as its own, whether it be of its legislature or Supreme Court, should utter the last word. So in other words, Jesus Christ is not the final revelation uh, of law and the nature of the cosmos, but the legislature or state Supreme Court. Now we have to appreciate that this is the elimination of the God of the Bible in relation to law, because it's the elimination of biblical transcendence. But, it, but it's more than that, because what is entailed in a biblical cosmology, namely transcendence, can't be eliminated. It was actually the transfer of the authority of God entailed in his transcendence to human beings. It's the immunitizing of all law. Now, now, what do I mean by this? And I believe this is key and something we tend to blow off as theology. It's not really relevant to our day-to-day -day work and considering law and civil government. And, and to be honest, that's a discredit in our thinking to the importance we place on thoughts about God and the importance of knowing God. Uh, but it's also uh, a, a, been a problem of the personal and societal detriment as a matter of cosmological necessity. I mean, not to know God and to know him in relation to all he's made and how it works produces death. That's the kind of cosmos we live in, and that's how it works. We may not like it, but that's what it is. You turn away from God, and death is the result. Death of society, death of persons, death of family, death of institutions. Now, I want to make sure we're all clear on the word transcendence because it's not discussed very often, and um, I don't ever remember it being discussed and explained in any great detail, and to the extent it was, its implications were, were not made particularly clear, at least to me. And what we mean by transcendence, biblical transcendence, and, and what I mean by the elimination of biblical transcendence by the Erie Railroad decision is, is that God is wholly distinct from all that he created. There's no sense of shared being between God and what he created. And because of that impenetrable and unbridgeable difference in being, the only relationship that can exist between God and his creation, if it's to be personal and anything more than a master and slave, must be covenantal. There's no shared being between us. And God must initiate that covenantal relationship. So beware of those who minimize covenantal theology, at least as it's rightly understood. Okay, uh, to, to be in a covenant relationship with God is the only kind of relationship of love and fellowship that creatures can have with God. And it's all a gracious gift on his part. I can't force God into a relationship 
with me or go to God with a bargaining chip that I'll do these things for you, God, if you'll enter into a relationship with me. That's heretical, okay? So, uh, as I mentioned, when you abolish transcendence in the biblical sense, you've transferred all law and authority to man, and that is eminentizing God. Now, as a Christian, we should understand the word eminent, that God is transcendent and eminent. And what we mean by that is because God is not in any kind of shared being relationship, but is wholly distinct from his creation, it is possible for him to be involved in his creation in all respects at all times. That's what we mean by God being transcendent and eminent. Okay? Now, notice what happens with the abolition of transcendence in a biblical sense. When I talk about law and truth is now eminentized. When the truth about a thing is found in the thing itself, that's, that's what I'm talking about by eminentizing the law. In other words, there's no reality behind or outside of the thing itself, but what it is is found in the thing itself. Now, this is nothing more than the debate between Plato and Aristotle, between Plato's forms, of which he said all things partake, and the idea of Aristotle that the reality of things is found in the things themselves. This, this latter view that the truth about things is found in the things themselves, the el elimination of the transcendent or Plato's um, um, pagan concept of forms is what we would call nominalism. In other words, the truth of things is found in the particular things. And that's what I'm referring to when I'm talking about nominal Christians that despite our affirmation of the transcendence of God as a practical matter, we have become nominalist or nominal Christians. So let me, let me explain how that works. Because I think when you think through this, you'll see why law today would embrace transgender ideology. It's the idea there's no truth about what it means to be human or even male and female that has a nature common to all of us as a human or is true of all men or of all women. Any truth that transcends us as humans or as male and female, but the truth is found in the individual person, you see, which is why the Supreme Court in Obergefell began with liberty is the right to define and express your own identity. In, in, there's not any truth that transcends us. It's just found in the individual person. And so words like human and man and woman and mother and father and husband and wife, all of them are just simply social constructs. They have no transcendent authority or transcendent meaning that has been immunitized because God has created and spoken things into existence and defined them in his speaking. No, we've made them up by ourselves, for ourselves, for the ordering of our lives and society. These words no longer express an objective outside of the individual person reality. You see, that's what transgenderism is, and that's because we've lost the notion of any true transcendence 
and located it in us, which effectively immunitizes all law and the knowledge of all things. Now, unfortunately, the same can be said for some Christians and even pastors I know when I've spoken to them about the Supreme Court's Obergefell versus Hodges decision in 2015. If you're not familiar with it, it's the, the case in which the Supreme Court said it violated the Constitution for states uh, to define marriage as a relationship between one man and one woman for the purposes of licensing marital relationships, okay? Now, in that opinion, the court used the word transcendent in multiple places, but it was a transcendent meaning that was created by society and more specifically by the two people who made the commitment to each other. And presumably the commitment had to be sexual in nature or any kind of long-term friendship commitment. Without sex would also be a marriage, you see. So Obergefell was a further immunitizing of law and the reality of marriage into the particular couple who's entering into this relationship. Now, here's where I found Christians and pastors giving intellectual assent to the transcendence of God, but denying it in reality. And that denial is when they have said to me that they don't really care how the law defines marriage as long as a man and a woman can marry. I mean, I've heard that from the majority leader in the state house of representatives. Okay, who who's a Christian? Not saying he's not a Christian, but I'm saying he's bought the notion of law that the Supreme Court gave us, has eliminated any transcendent realities, and found the reality of marriage located in the in in just the two people. And then pastors have said essentially the same thing that as long as the couple they marry is a man and a woman, then then that's okay. In other words, the reality of marriage doesn't pertain to all persons. It's just important uh, what we mean in that particular instance. That is nominalism. That's a nominalistic Christianity. The truth of marriage is found in the persons themselves, and that is exactly the same kind of cosmological thinking the Supreme Court used in, in the Obergefell decision and the thinking the transgender community uses. So as Christians, perhaps, before we call on those who support same-sex marriage and transgenderism to repent, we should repent of the same reduction of reality and truth to the imminent. And perhaps we should begin to consider calling on government in a different way, in the way we draft our legislation and the way we make our legal arguments in support of them to again push the court to a recognition of transcendent realities. Otherwise, I personally think we're wasting our time. And we'll get more into that and what really happened with the Erie Railroad's conception of the law next, next week and what must change if the directions of things is to change. And I hope you'll join me next week for that episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, 
please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.